Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I, uh, I love music. No, don't hide that at all. And I love to see our, our young people growing up singing. Uh, if I live long enough and I'm not infirm, they'll be in my choir someday. Uh, <laughs> I hope somebody else is directing before then. <laughs> I was uh, in about eighth grade, I believe, when somebody invited me to be part of the church choir. I, I don't even remember who that was or how that happened. Um, I, uh, you know, singing wasn't that big of a deal to me, and somehow they invited me into the choir, and somewhere in that process, I think, I think my voice changed, and I heard myself sing, and I thought, wow, uh, that's not too bad. <laughs> and I... Uh, and I didn't say that arrogantly. I said that as sort of like, wow, I'm surprised that came out of me. And next year, I joined the choir in high school and just had a wonderful musical education in my high school choir. And of course, I, I was in band all those years as well. But our high school choir, uh, we had a director who was a member of a, of a mainline Christian church, and I guess his background was in that kind of music. And so we sang half of our program in Latin high church music. We sang our whole program in eight-part a cappella. And I thought that was normal. And, uh, you know, occasionally we'd use the piano for something, but, but uh, learned how to pronounce Latin and uh, learned what some of those words meant. Now, don't, uh, don't make any mistake, this was not a Christian school. Um, the, of the 80 or so members in this choir, there probably wasn't more than a handful that were Christian. And, uh, and the director, although he was a member of a Christian church, was definitely not a Christian person. And yet, somehow, this was considered good classical music, and so we sang it. I, I wonder if they still do that up to high school. Latin high church music? Sing a lot of that up there? Not so much. No. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised. These days, almost anything that smells like Christmas or Christianity is really being pushed out of the public square, and, and that's part of, uh, part of the struggle that Christians are having in our country these days. You can sing about Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but don't talk about the baby in the manger. Um, you can have a holiday tree, but not a Christmas tree. And the thing that I'd like to help you understand today is, is, first of all, this is not a new battle. It started almost as soon as Christ was born. And, and what's happened is that battle that started when Christ was born has continued, but it's changed forms. And I want to talk about the enemy of Christ today, especially at Christmas time. And so follow with me in Matthew chapter 2 as we read the, the really ugly part of the Christmas story uh, as, we would, as we would think about the events around the birth of Christ. This is the ugly one. And we see the enemy of Christ. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
Can you imagine a man so powerful and so bad that when he got upset, the whole town got upset? And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go, search out carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There are two main characters that we need to think about in this, in this terrible story, and the first of them is an exceedingly good group of men called the wise men. In the Greek, if you've, if you've ever heard of the, uh, the story, the gift of the magi, the Greek word is magi that's here, and, and uh, that is the name for these men. Um, they were essentially what we would call part scientist and part religionist. In other words, they studied the, the stars, they studied the physical world, and they did develop a great deal of scientific knowledge. In fact, people don't, don't realize how much scientific knowledge came out of the area that we today call Iraq. Um, we don't know um, exactly where they're from, but from this name and from the fact that they were somewhere east of Israel. In other words, we have seen his star in the east. That doesn't mean the star appeared in the east. That means they were in the east looking at Israel, and they said, we have seen his star, and we have come to to investigate. They were enough of what we would call scientists that they had observed the, the stars and one day, boom, there's a new prominent star and they went, wow, where'd that come from? And apparently it stayed there and uh, they said, well, let's go look into that. Now, they also said, 
where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, that's not an accident. And they didn't think that up on their own. Somehow, God had to communicate with them. Uh, God could have given them a special revelation. He gave dreams to unbelievers. But they could have even started with truth that was revealed in their hometown area through a guy called Daniel. Daniel had this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Do you remember? That's the name Jesus most often used about himself when he was talking in the third person. The Son of Man has come for this, the Son of Man. I saw one like the Son of Man who came in the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, or God the Father, when they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. The, the people of the area we call Iraq, you could call it the city of Babylon, you could call it Assyria, they had this revelation because God gave it to Daniel there. And of course it was given back to the Jewish people as well through Daniel, but they had this. And so here come these wise men saying, where is he born king of the Jews? They also had this from Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built, the wall even in troublous times. Wouldn't it be something if these, if these what we would call secular wise men, scientists, um, studiers of ancient documents and ideas studied this stuff from Daniel and said, hey, the timing is going to be like this and this, and boom, this star appeared, and they're going, I wonder if this is what Daniel was writing about. And so they got on their camel, and they rode. And, and you find that the timing, you know, when they said the star appeared about this time and Herod was calculating the time, he said it was two years' time difference, I hope it doesn't crash your idea too much to know that the wise men probably were not there on the night Jesus was born. It's kind of like the pastor. He doesn't hear about the birth until a week later sometimes. So they found out, and they got on their camel, but it takes several months to ride across there. So at the very least, let's make it quick, and let's say it took them nine months to get there. I mean, it probably took a month to get their stuff together. Really, because this is like a caravan. This is a huge deal. So it took them some time, but they came. And then, of course, the other character in this terrible play is King Herod. And we see here that he was a man given to anger and to jealousy over his throne. You can go back and read in history some terrible things that he did. Uh, one of the things that he did is he rounded up a bunch, of, a bunch of important people when he was getting near death himself. And he said, when I die, I want all of them put to death so everybody in town will be grieving. That's the kind of man he was. So when we see him here putting all these, these young uh, boys to death, that's not out of character for him. That's not a one-off for him. That's, that's the kind of the way he lived his life. It was a terrible way because he had his throne and his kingdom and he's going to keep it at all costs. But what I want you to understand today is Herod wasn't the real enemy. The real enemy is spoken of in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, in part, there are pieces of it that look backward as well as there are pieces of it that look forward. And we have to understand that as we, as we look to the identity of Christ's enemy from the book of Revelation chapter 12. 
Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her for th- feed her there for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now this passage of scripture starts at Joseph and goes all the way to a time forward that has not even happened yet, and all of that is compressed into nine verses. And we could spend uh, a number of hours unpacking all of it, but I want you to see the big picture here. And the big picture is several key players. Verse 1 is a poetic reference to the nation of Israel. It talked about the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. Joseph had a dream And his mom and dad were the sun and the moon, and the 11 stars were his brothers, and it says they all bowed down to him. That's what made them so angry, and they cast him into a pit, and then he got down to Egypt and all of that. But this is a poetic reference to the nation of Israel. And then we have a reference to Jesus. There is only one person in Scripture ever predicted who was to rule all nations. And then we have this this fiery red dragon who's ready to devour the child. And the reason I read all the way to verse 9 is because he's clearly identified as Satan. And what did he stand ready to do? He's ready to devour the child. God gives us this little snapshot, and he says the woman or the nation of Israel is ready to give birth to the king who was to come. And here's Satan, like a, like a nervous father waiting in the delivery room, but he's got evil intentions. And he's saying, as soon as that child is born, I'm going to kill him. And that's what he tried to do. He was there waiting to devour the child. And the events recorded in Matthew 2 show us that. Satan was waiting for the baby to be born. He had his man, Herod, full of jealousy and lacking any human decency, ready to do his bidding, but God was not surprised. And he told the wise men, don't go back through Jerusalem on your way home. Go, go straight out this way. And he told Joseph, get up and take that child down to Egypt. And, of course, many, many folks have aptly observed gold, frankincense, and myrrh, highly valuable. What do you suppose they used them for? They lived in Egypt for a couple of years And they lived off of those wonderful gifts. But this was just the first salvo in Satan's attack on Christmas. If we're going to understand his battle, we need to first of all go to Ephesians chapter 2 and remember his authority. 
And Ephesians 2 tells us this, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All believers once walked according to the course of this world or the pattern of our society, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Uh, some Bible students have uh, surmised that, that because he was good in his creation, as were all of the angels, that perhaps he was given the authority over this planet to begin with before he ever uh, chose to, to uh, rebel against God and become wicked. No matter how it started, we know that Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, he's not the absolute ruler. God is the absolute ruler. Christ is the absolute ruler. Satan has authority that God allows him to have. We see a snapshot of that in the book of Job. Satan can only do within certain boundaries, but in general, he is the ruler of this world, not the physical planet, but the cosmos. The word for world here is cosmos. It means an ordered system. It's the society. The society is under his rule, and what he does, according to Ephesians 2, is he influences unbelievers to fulfill fleshly desires. Ephesians said that, we, that, that unbelievers live according to their, to their desires, and they're pressed that way by the world. And then Satan does a, another thing, which is equally wicked and perhaps worse. He impedes unbelievers from grasping the gospel. Listen to this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, should shine on them. How does Satan impede people from believing the gospel? He passes around thoughts like this. Religion is a crutch. Baptists don't have any fun. You know, they don't believe in dancing or smoking or drinking or, 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 or any of those really good things, those fun things. He's a Bible thumper. Religion isn't scientific. Bible believers are bigots and homophobes. And he blinds their mind to the gospel by positive statements like, all that matters is that you be a good person. You do more good than evil, you'll make it. And all of those things cloud the mind of the person who hasn't believed in Christ. And probably for many of them, hundreds, thousands of them who drive by here every day, it keeps them from coming in the door. It's not us only that keeps them from coming in the door. It's Satan. And then Satan also influences believers in the same way. He influences the world to think certain things and act in certain ways, and the world presses on us. Those very thoughts that I shared with you affect you. You have to work to let them not, to make sure they don't affect you, but there's a push and, and of course, what we've seen in our society in the last 
30, 40 years as a greater push, a greater push, a greater push. There have always been millions of unbelievers in our country, but there's been a push to, to sort of marginalize us as Christians. And, and we think it's a new thing, but it's not. It's just the latest tactic in Satan's battle on Christianity. Satan influences believers, and the challenge for us is to follow what Ephesians 4 says. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk like the rest of the unbelievers. That's Gentile is a synonym for unbeliever. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Satan influences believer, unbelievers through the world. And so our society is infused with the philosophy of Satan, and Christmas time is a prime example of his influence. Now, some of you just, just, just went, wait a minute there, Dave. It's Christmas time, and there's a lot of good stuff going on. And you're telling me this is the strategy of Satan? I'm telling you it could be. Let's think about some of the ways he works out his strategy today at Christmas time. And the first is what I'd like to call diversion. Diversion. One of the most popular phrases used at this time of year is this. There's a couple of phrases. One is, this is the season of giving. And you're saying, what could possibly be wrong with that? That's what it's all about. It's the season of giving. That's what it's all about. There's an annual Toys for Tots campaign led by the Marine Corps Reserve and Marine Corps League Many other similar but smaller efforts to make sure every impoverished child gets Christmas gifts. Biggest example in our Puget Sound region is the Cairo Radio drive to get gifts for foster children. And this year they raised nearly $500,000 to give gifts to foster children. Now, lest you call me the Grinch, let me say that giving to the less fortunate is a wonderful thing. But is that what the season is all about? Or could it be possible that people get so wrapped up in the season of giving and the season of helping people that they really do believe that's what it's all about? Is it possible that Satan has very subtly shifted our society to a good thing away from the right thing? Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. See, we look at Herod and go, oh, that's terrible what Herod did, and it is terrible. And we look today at, at all of this emphasis and giving, we say, that's wonderful. And it is wonderful, but not if it takes the place of what Matthew 121 says. And she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We have to constantly work at remembering that this season is about a Savior. I don't think it's by accident that the Christmas tree is next to the cross. Was, was that just an aesthetic choice, or was there a little bit of spiritual thought in that? A little bit. Well, it, it could have been a, a highly rationed out theological thought. The birth and the death of Christ referenced together as they always should be because 
the death, burial, and resurrection is what the birth initiated. It was the beginning of all of that. By all means, give to people in need during this season, but do it like a Samaritan's purse does with the shoe boxes, or, or do it the way we do with the cookies made especially for you by the First Baptist Church with a little invitation to church, a little gospel, a little, a little Christian booklet in there. Hey, we love you, and, and here's what you really need inside this box besides the cookies. By all means, give to people, but give the gospel and make sure that the gospel main, remains as the most important part of this whole season. Don't be diverted away from the real thing for something that is good, but not ultimately the most important. There's another way that Satan wages war on Christmas. I've called it decadence. Um, you know, I get the Sunday paper, and it looks to me like they killed about four trees to make that dude and uh, deliver it to my door full of sale papers. Our society refers to this as the season of giving. It would be more honest to call it the season of getting. Because while people want to give, you know, a little bit, they really want to get. Every year the onset of Christmas advertising and sales is earlier and earlier. This year there was a, a, a debate in the public square, I mean, on the media, you know, it's just not right for them to open those stores on Thanksgiving Day. Those people should be able to have their day off for their Thanksgiving. And there's this debate about that, and ultimately, the dollar bill won. <laughs> and they opened the stores, and people went shopping. And uh, they're open all night long. And <laughs> people went shopping all night long. Because <laughs> they got to get the big dollars, got to get the big, big sale. We have children sitting on Santa's lap with one objective. Tell him what you want. Tell, give me, give me, give me. Now, make no mistake about it. All the grandchildren in our life are draining my bank account. <laughs> it's about half gone. We got another week of shopping left, you know. And that's a fine thing, and it's a good thing. But, what does God say about possessions? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich or to have stuff fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Do you know anyone who is content with food and clothing? <laughs> that's all I need. Clothes on my back and some three squares, that's all I gotta have. That's it. You know, maybe a warm place to stay. Not too many of us. Even the ones who don't have it are not content with it. We're constantly looking for more. Do you approach Christmas... Do you approach that time when you open gifts saying, you know what, 
I got food and clothing, roof over my head. I don't need anything else. I am perfectly happy. Or do you secretly think, boy, I wish they got that thing that I wanted. I hope it's there. And there's nothing wrong with gift giving. I get that. But when the gifts have all been opened, will you be saying, how blessed am I? No matter what I got, how blessed am I? Or will you be saying, is that all? Is that it? Satan wants us to be discontent. He wants us to want stuff, and he wants us to focus our life on stuff. More stuff, more stuff. Because as long as we are diverted over to stuff, we're not focused on the real thing, Jesus Christ. There's a third a tool, that, uh, a strategy that Satan employs. It's what I've called distraction. At Christmas time, there are lights to put up, uh, a tree to buy and decorate, gifts to purchase and wrap. And don't forget Christmas cards, as Chet reminded us today. They're starting to fill the mailboxes there. And of course, your Christmas card can't just be a Christmas card. There's got to be at least a one-page summary of your family's year with pictures in color. And the house needs to be cleaned and food needs to be purchased and there's got to be preparations made for the big day. One of the topics of conversation when you go shopping is, are you ready for Christmas? People, you know, this, you know, if they're not talking about the weather, they're talking about, are you ready for Christmas? You remember this little event from the life of Christ? Now it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Do do, do any of you just get the, the, there's so much irony in this thing, where Martha's biggest concern is the serving, and she's talking to the guy that she's seen do miracles, heal the dead, speak God's truth, and her biggest concern is, tell my sister to get up and start cooking dinner. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled. You are distracted with many things. But one thing, one thing is needed, and Martha has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. That's Jesus' way of saying, no, Martha, I'm not going to tell her to get up and start serving. Now, would you fast forward to the day Christ died? You know, Scripture says the women were standing around watching. The disciples were at a distance, scared for their life. John was there. Was Martha there? And if she was there, do you think she was going, man, I missed an opportunity to sit and listen to him talk so I could make dinner. Ah. You got to make dinner. You're going to have people over. You got to make preparations. But I want to challenge you not to fall into the devil's trap of being so wound up with preparations that worship disappears 
See, that's the thing, that's the thing that, that you're either worshiping or you're worrying. And the question to ask yourself would be, do I have time to listen to Christ in the Word and talk with Him in prayer? Do I have time to be in church in an undistracted way? Or am I full of care like Martha was? The fourth, uh, on here, uh, busyness can fool us into thinking we're doing something important when the reality might be we're just busy. Was Mary or Martha doing the important thing? I think Mary was doing the important thing. I think that's what Jesus said. And we gotta be careful that we don't mistake busyness for meaning. The fourth tool that the, that the devil uses, the fourth strategy is what I've called discomfort. Discomfort. Uh, and this is the one perhaps that, that he is using uh, more than many today. Um, before we came here to Ferndale, we lived in a suburb of, of Seattle, and I served as a chaplain there in the police and fire departments. And they had an annual employee recognition dinner in December. And they had Christmas decorations, and they would have me pray before dinner, and uh, they would give gifts out and whatnot, and that was all well and good till we got a new mayor. And the new mayor moved it from December to January because he didn't want to even appear to be having a Christmas event. And within a couple of years, they stopped having anybody pray at all. And that was 14 years ago, maybe. Things have gotten worse since then. I have a friend who worked in the public sector, and one year the boss told the workers, you cannot put any Christmas decorations in your cubicle. Okay? The politically correct reference these days is to a holiday tree, and instead of saying Merry Christmas, you're supposed to say Happy Holidays. See, Satan has worked through our society to make us uncomfortable. He wants us to be uncomfortable with anything Christian. And the goal, of course, for him is to remove Christ from Christmas. Jesus was getting us ready for this uh, battle zone when he, wrote, when he said these words. If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus, Jesus said right from the get-go, you're going to follow me, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into his own glory and his Father's and that of the holy angels. Jesus said, look, you're going to have some battles. You're going to have some struggles. Um, Satan wants us to be uncomfortable with Christianity in the public square. Now, there's no virtue to being rude or mean or in your face about our beliefs to other people. You know, we, there, are, there are things passed around on the internet to, that really are, are kind of mean-spirited about Christians asserting their rights and so on. There, there's no value to that. But, we need to graciously stand for the truth, realizing 
that the ultimate source of our opposition is far above our government or any other entity that you might see. It is Satan himself, and his goal is to stop Christ from reaching more people through us. I stopped in to visit a friend who does not share my Christian faith uh, this week. And uh, he asked what I'd been doing lately. And, uh, you know, just about any question you ask a preacher can be turned to a gospel presentation. <laughs> when I used to visit the fire hall in Tuck Willow, they'd say, what do you know? And then they'd go, whoa, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'd say, I know a lot of things that you don't know. He asked what I'd been doing lately, and somehow in the conversation it came up that we'd had three memorial services in the last month. And um, when I mentioned that, boy, he just started shaking his head and saying, boy, I do not like going to funerals. All people say are cliches, and it's just so awkward. And, and uh, he said, I just do everything I can to avoid those. And I was just so happy to share with him. And... Uh, what was so exciting to me, what, what was fun for me was I just shared out of the joy in my heart. I mean, wh what a great blessing to be at, you know, here Joyce is able to be with us and now that Al doesn't need her care and Al, her husband Al had, went to be with the Lord uh, two or three weeks ago, however long it's been now. And every single person who talked about Al at, at his memorial talked about him knowing the word and living for the Lord and witnessing for the Lord and how he had affected them to do the same thing. What a wonderful thing that was and, and how wonderful for him to have the confidence of heaven and to talk about it and, and, and for us to have confidence about him. And, and it's sort of like, what's the problem with memorial services? You know, um, it's a blessing to just to see the confidence of the Lord. And I was just, I was just sharing as, as joyfully and positively as I could with, with my friend and just, just saying, you know, this is where Christianity really becomes real. And, it, and I just went on and on. And, and he just kind of went, whoa. whoa. <laughs> but you know what? That's the real thing. We have the real thing, the real Jesus who was the Son of God. He was born in Bethlehem. He did grow up and die on a cross and was buried and rose again to pay for our sins, to change our lives now and give us eternity later. He is what Christmas is about, and He is worth celebrating. Why would we exchange that for some cheap imitation of any other sort? Do you have the real thing, the real Jesus, the real Christmas? If some other substitute has snuck in, toss it out today and put Christ in his rightful place in your life. Heavenly Father, oh, I'm so thankful to know Christ and to know why we have a Christmas celebration Father, help us not to be swayed by the, the strategic attempts of the enemy of our soul to get us off track. Help us to stay on target with Christ. I pray for my friend and for anybody here who doesn't know Christ yet. Will you, will you open people's minds and hearts and help them to see the wonderful reality of knowing Christ?
Thank you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.